Hello, this is Meta Bakajola, writer for the Trade and Economics Department. Snigathati Kunda, writer for the Trade and Economics Department. And Carolina Byrne, writer for the Culture Relations Department. Welcome to the Global Generation, the International Youth Politics Forum's podcast. Recently, at least 15 protesters from Hong Kong's political opposition camp were arrested in suspicion of organizing what were referred to as illegal protests. As a result, the actions of the Chinese government have brought into question the effect of democracy on an international level and its shortcomings with voter suppression in today's complicated times. There are many elections taking place this year all around the world, with India having their own coming up in May and the U.S. having theirs later this fall. Elections lead to enhanced focuses on electoral systems and the voting process to equally represent the voices of the population. But disruption and suppression become rampant during these times, and it's up to general population to fact-check themselves and share their credible facts to the world, as several media sources become increasingly biased, which you can hear more about on our disinformation episode. In times where it's especially difficult, it's important to allow people to voice their concerns rather than letting rampant governments control the narrative. Um, I guess it'd be good to start off with the mail-in voting system, which is becoming more prevalent in America especially. Um, so Trump, uh, President Donald Trump has fears of mail-in voting um, as he seems it to be an opportunity for voter fraud, yet several Republican state officials are undermining this and continuing, it, continuing with it regardless. Even Republican officials in Iowa, Ohio, and West Virginia are taking steps to ease this process. Nebraska's Republican governor urged absentee ballots. And Florida's GOP chairman says the party will continue a vote-by-mail program. So on March 30th, Trump went on Fox and Friends to give a little discussion about the stimulus package that was being drafted in uh, the government. So Trump said, the things they had in there were crazy. They had things, levels of voting that if you'd ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. They had things in there about election days and what you do and all sorts of clawbacks. They had things that were just totally crazy and had nothing to do with workers that lost their jobs and companies that we have to save. So what Trump is saying here is basically that with this whole stimulus package, the idea was to kind of rejuvenate the economy to kind of put a pillow under the ginormous drop that was uh, the economic fallback from this pandemic. And what he's saying is that instead of focusing on how we're going to deal with voting in the upcoming fall elections, we should have been putting all of the $2.2 trillion from the stimulus package into helping uh, workers and small businesses. So with this, within the $2.2 trillion stimulus package that the U.S. passed, only $400 million were allocated to states to run their elections via mail in the upcoming elections. It's ludicrous to even like process the fact that he's saying Republicans are going to be received or Democrats are the only beneficiaries from having mail-in voting when in fact I think the only example of voter fraud in the last 20 years pertaining to mail-in ballot mail-in voting has elected Republican candidates. So it is very much Trump trying to get a hold of the U.S. election before anything can swing in either direction. But mail-in voting has only in recent years provided a higher voter turnout rate 
and has only really been beneficial. I live in Oregon and we were one of the first states to go all mail-in or even not all mail-in, but to have that option as a more approachable an alternative for many people who don't have the means to go to a polling station in the middle of the day when they have jobs and other things to attend to. So Trump advocating for the total elimination of mail-in voting is eliminating a lot of minorities from speaking up about politics and alienating that entire audience. I don't think like packaging packaging it with the stimulus money was fine enough but him cutting down the resources is only serving to better his chances of re-election and make a lot of people be underrepresented what trump is trying to do is basically shut down the u.s postal service so that ballots can't be cast through mail uh a lot of people around him are telling him that if you let people vote by mail you're going to have worse chances because just statistically speaking, more minorities and more Democratic voters vote through mail um, if they have that option. So what Trump's strategy here is basically to shut down the U.S. Postal Service and make sure mail-in voting doesn't happen. And today is April 28th at the time we're recording this, and it does not look like people are going to be swarming to the voting booths in the um come to the fall elections amidst this like terrible pandemic. So it, it's just really contradictory for a president, the leader of the free world to say, okay, if you guys want to vote, you're going to need to risk your lives and you're not going to be able to vote through mail for some obscure voter fraud reason that doesn't actually have too much backing. Um, also coming on from this, a spokesperson for the Democratic National Committee, Sochi Hinosa, was saying that ensuring that Americans can vote during the COVID-19 crisis is fundamental to maintaining our democracy. And to uh, sum up that, she basically was just saying that when the American people vote, Republicans lose. And it seems as though that's what Trump is admitting to in times like this, especially with what Snigda was saying with Democrats accusing Republicans of preventing, you know, minorities or immigrants from voting who are primarily um, Democratic demographics. The disconnect between Trump and Republicans illustrates the increasing divide between otherwise politically allied officials and most in the GOP are okay officially with mail-in voting and are using it in their campaigns and said that it can be frictionless and be used to their political advantage. So I think it is primarily surrounding Trump's re-election campaign and why the Republicans are starting to kind of gear up against it to increase their prospects. But voting is the soul of democracy and voter suppression is inherently undemocratic. And even the people are vastly in favor of mail-in voting because of this terrible pandemic. A poll conducted by Harvard and Harris Insights and Analytics on April 14th shows that 72% of voters support making 2020 presidential elections entirely vote by mail. And it just, it simply makes sense drawing from the conclusions that, like, surrounding the health uh, concerns that are going on right now, people don't want to be jumping through rings of fire or leaping over a pit of tigers to make sure they can vote. If it's possible to vote by mail, which I mean, it's 
is technology uh, technologically proven to be possible, then that should be the way this works instead of people like risking their lives to do their uh, democratic part in voting. Yeah, I think there was I a mean... lot of concern from governments about how like mail-in voting is more expensive for state governments to regulate and to provide everybody with return postal stamps and all of that. But the fact is, even if you don't have online access, it's not that difficult for the government to make mail-in voting easier for people who can't either afford it or don't have the means to access online voting. It's entirely a case of how people approach the problem. And I think that's why it's such a hard discussion for people to mandate because there's so many different groups that you have to attend to. I mean, I live overseas, but both of my parents are American citizens. And with everything going on, the embassies have been closed, which means that my parents don't get a chance to vote in this election because of everything going on. So even like as much as the problem is within the United States, it's also affecting its citizens overseas and pretty much everywhere. Non-residential citizens as well. Yeah, I think that also opens up the conversation about our like what example we set up for other democracies around the world, because if we're alienating our own non-residential citizens, then and also our own internal citizens who are actually here, it's kind of pushing forth this example that it's fine to do this. It's fine to suppress your voters to achieve what you want to for your government, so long as you believe it's for the best, when that's also inherently undemocratic. Yeah, so if Trump is successful in shutting down the U.S. Postal Service and just shutting down mail-in voting, the upcoming presidential elections are going to look really interesting and Really, nobody knows what it's going to what's going to happen if people are even going to be able to go to the polls. Like, if this problem is getting worse, if this problem um, completely disappears by then, like these are two completely different stories. But nobody knows what's going to happen. But and just eliminating that prospect of mail-in voting could be really dangerous to uh, voter suppression, to people trying to get their voices out there and being suppressed by the government who has this ulterior motive in getting re-elected and, and trying to uh, suppress voters in the process in order to get re-elected. And it's a lot more interesting as well if you address the fact that this wouldn't be the first time the Trump campaign has been accused of voter suppression. There's a direct quote from an aide from the last election for Trump's uh, campaign uh, who's quoted by saying that, quote, traditionally, it's always been Republicans suppressing votes in places, um, which although he did later address that he was uh, speaking about the previous accusations, it's extremely hard to ignore that the Republican Party and more specifically the Trump campaign is aware of these accusations, but are still not making any steps to rectify this or sort of reject these accusations or make it easier for votes to not be ignored, suppressed or unable to be casted. Honestly, the Electoral College itself is voter suppression. At this point, it's <laughs> it's kind of hard to deny that the vast majority of people didn't agree with what happened in 2016 elections and nothing really came out of that. And we're almost at the end of his term. Side note, is Trump still impeached? That That is a fact. 
okay so that's stellar for the u.s democracy but even then like it's already difficult for representation with the lack of proper voting access especially in rural areas but getting rid of mail-in ballots for people that just don't that can't be able to express their voice it's like the equivalent of cutting out a voter's tongue before they even can get the chance to open their mouth it's wrong it's inherently wrong and if anything an increased mail-in voting would seemingly benefit the republican party considering that it would tend to support the ability for older populations to vote which tend to be the demographic that support the republican party overall Essentially, regardless of this debate, the polarization of the parties and the newly emerging black and white mentality of someone being staunchly either Republican or Democrat creates this divide. Regarding voter suppression, it's clear that political allegiance needs to be placed on a back burner, whilst Americans focus on preventing this miscarriage of democracy and overall work to ensure a free and fair election, regardless of the outcome or personal bias. Now we go over to the other side of the world and take a look at voter suppression in Hong Kong amidst the recent democratic protests. So for a brief background to Hong Kong and basically how these protests have been happening over the past year, Hong Kong was a former British colony handed back to China in 1997. And right now it has an independent judiciary and legal system with freedom of assembly and freedom of speech. But these freedoms that Hong Kong has, uh, which are given to it under the basic law, expire in 2047, and it is not clear what Hong Kong's status is going to be uh, after that basic law expires. So a lot of protests have been going around regarding Hong Kong and its uh, independence from China which date back to April of last year. In April of last year, China introduced an extradition bill saying that in certain circumstances, Hong Kongers would be taken to mainland China for trial. And this aroused fear among activists saying that China would be targeting, using it to target, target people with political voices um, to just take them out of the picture. So this bill was suspended, but Hong Kong wanted it withdrawn completely. And then after a few months of protests, the bill was withdrawn officially on October 23rd. But this was not really enough for the protesters who had five demands. Um, So the five demands from the protesters uh, were that, first of all, their protests were not to be characterized as a riot. Uh, as well as this, they wanted amnesty for the arrested protesters and an independent inquiry into alleged police brutality. Uh, they also wanted the implementation of complete universal suffrage and the withdrawal of the bill. The New York Times article by Elaine Yu, um, that was published on April 18th, basically said that more than a dozen leading activists and formal, former lawmakers in Hong Kong were arrested in connection to the protests. And there was an incident early last year or the year before where five people could like connected to a bookshop of some form were outside of the country when they weren't even in Hong Kong were kidnapped and just disappeared off the face of the planet. So Beijing and Hong Kong are in a political standstill right now with both sides trying to fight back and gain some of their democratic rights, but it's leading to a lot of conflict because of how 
the initial bill was formatted. And suppression is taking over a lot more now with this whole pandemic, which basically gives Beijing the power to do what it wants. So amidst the pandemic, Beijing has been taking advantage of the halted protests to squander Hong Kong's resistance. Already, the Chinese government has arrested many democratic activists uh, who can't really have their voice heard right now because the protests aren't happening. Now that all of the democratic uh, momentum is coming to a very sudden stop, Beijing is quickly trying to extinguish the fuel even further so that it can't start up again. So Beijing's goal here is basically because it's fed up with Hong Kong, it just wants to end the chaos once and for all. Furthermore, they're trying to extinguish the Hong Kong identity. I mean, with how the with how Britain originally phrased their handover agreement with Hong Kong, it was that Hong Kong would be gradually acclimated to the Chinese culture and to the country. And there was a very interesting graph where up until the point where China started changing their approach to the Hong Kong people, the Hong Kong people were actually identifying as Chinese. There was a steady incline of people who felt that they were Chinese and not Hong Kong. But once China started changing their approach towards the people, it went in the complete opposite polar direction with a large amount of people identifying with the Hong Kong identity. But even the news in Hong Kong, they play the Chinese anthem on every day, every hour, basically. It's entirely stripping of their identity, which is what I think so many people are desperate to hold on to. Um, I actually got the chance to visit Hong Kong about two years ago, this time of year. And I can definitely say that from personal experience, it was I've been to both Beijing and Hong Kong. And Hong Kong felt significantly um, almost sort of, I guess, heavy with Chinese influence. Like they do play the anthem a lot. I took the train around the city and uh, the noise between the platforms is uh, a lot of different Chinese music as opposed to music more from the area, like traditional, like the essentially the Chinese equivalent of like America the, the Beautiful, where it's more of like this Chinese influence sort of just infiltrating lives there in general. So the main takeaways from both of these instances, voter suppression in the United States and voter suppression in Hong Kong, is that the COVID pandemic is being used for political gain to undermine democracy and to fuel authoritarianism because it is killing public opinion and it is killing representation. So it's basically using this crisis to politicize uh, into making the most out of the situation for the people in power. I think it's also notable to mention the fact that as a you know politics platform, the vast majority of people who are advocating for voter rights and this, I guess, separation from Chinese powers in Hong Kong are younger people because it, the way that the original agreement was phrased, they're going to be the ones that have to deal with the effects of this bill wherever it goes in their lifetime. It's their lives that are directly affected. It's their citizenship that is going to be altered. So 
that's a very drastic difference, I feel, from the U.S. and the Hong Kong voter suppression situations just because of how much youth activism there is in Hong Kong. And they have a lot of influence in that region. Um, yeah, I recently wrote an article for the IYPF about the way that China, like the People's Republic, controls their media. And it was it links about back it links back both to America and what's happening in Hong Kong, where uh, constituents are greatly influenced by what they are being shown in the media. And, um, you know, that greatly affects how they vote based off their own like voter perception. And I think it's very interesting to also note that, you know, China is a communist country and it's, you know, communism as an ideology is often known for this uh, totalitarianism, dictatorship type, government where you have the people sort of uh, being subjected to what the government decides rather than democracy. So I feel like it's very easy to, in a, in a regime or under this type of ideology, to sort of pick up on voter suppression a lot easier overall. I think as a resident of America, it's really easy to get swept up in the more democratic ideals that we do have here. I think that's why I personally feel more sympathetic towards the people of Hong Kong. But what at the time that the British handed over Hong Kong to China, Hong Kong was making about, what was it, 25% of China's total economy. Like they were a significant number of the entire just output. But now I feel like the strategy for China to take over Hong Kong, it's more symbolic than it is financially needed. Because if China does manage to eliminate the one country, two party system, or what the official name is, I don't know, it further goes to support their communist country and their regime. But it is fundamentally just stripping of their rights and their identity and that's I think more harmful to the Chinese government than it is to the Hong Kong government in some ways just because it reflects so poorly on them. Also the current pandemic is being used for campaigning platforms for example Trump and his underrated oh my god so the current pandemic is being used for campaigning platforms like Trump's underreported cases and the severity of the ninth. Uh, COVID-19 crisis will support his re-election campaign. And a few nights ago, he said that the governors are refusing tests for states to keep the number of cases down. Uh, and he's blatantly lied to the media about what he's doing. But ultimately, it's not about one president's decisions. It's about the damage that they're doing to democracy overall. And as we've seen, we've also looked at Hong Kong and other examples throughout the world. COVID-19 isn't being used as a disguise for this heavy politicization, not just in the United States. Countries like Israel and Singapore are using the pandemic to justify tracking people via their cell phones. Another example of how it's being used by the government is that in Iran, the government is deploying security forces to clear the streets for COVID measures. In India, is it Narendra president Modi? or prime minister? Prime Minister Narendra Modi is using the outbreak to demonize Muslim protesters. And I hope I can re-enter India after saying that out loud. 
But yeah, he's, <laughs> he's basically using COVID-19 as a way to mask his ongoing nationalistic campaign against Muslims to strip their rights and calling them terrorists and a direct threat, which because they are going out and still protesting against um, the measures that Modi is trying to implement against that demographic. And Modi is kind of flipping that as you don't care about the rest of the country, you are very self-centered, you're terrorists, and we're all going to die because of you. And that's obviously very much not true. But again, like it's under the guise of them not adhering to social distancing principles. And it's being used as this xenophobic attack. And that's not fair to anybody. I mean, where I live, it's a Muslim country, and it's um, governed by an absolute monarchy. So it's a lot different, um, sort of following the ideas of democracy. But it's, there is this sort of everyone I feel like is sort of using this pandemic as a way to stigmatize people and demonize certain racial groups, especially like even in minute levels where in school people will crack jokes at people from China and, you know, it's sort of becoming a main, a big sort of, not a joke per se, but a way to sort of, I don't know what I'm saying. Just ignore me. No, I think you are right. I I think even as a monarchy, does Dubai have the same democratic rights, like for the people, even though it is a monarchy? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I think it is a very much a case-by-case situation. And as I wrote in the outline, people are using the pandemic to justify their personal gains. You can see this in Trump's campaign. You can see this with what Modi is doing with his campaigns. It's a reflection of what our political state was before the virus ever set in. And now is the time to kind of reflect on what we're doing and why we're doing it. Because we haven't had the chance to really sit down and face all of these issues until now. And now that we have no choice but to see the problems, it's kind of a unique position that we're in. Also, Romania was in a very unique situation because this whole thing was happening during their voting season, but they had to set aside politics for the time being and hold an emergency election just so that just so they would have a leader with full powers. And that so, was very I think that was a smarter decision, honestly, because even though it's it is undemocratic to kind of host this in such a tense state but having not having a leader at this point in time would have been the, the worst possible state to be in and even with the emergency election it's i think it's the most different approach we've seen so far with while the u.s is talking about having mail-in ballots romania just straight up did an emergency election they just shifted up the timeline and that's notable in the international field at least um, even in countries like Israel, where there's been years of conflict between the two different political parties, uh, they've managed to form one emergency government to handle this. So at the end of the day, it's sort of countries needing to separate the need for, um, you know, a majority government versus just the well-being of their people. I think coming on from this as well, in terms of different ways that democracy is being handled, there's 
you know, also the issue of different electoral systems and the problems that they face regardless of a pandemic or not. Particularly, the first-past-the-post voting system in the UK has always been under scrutiny, especially following the uh, Brexit referendum, where the majority of the UK voted on a very slim majority to leave the EU, whereas Scotland, as its own country um, within the UK, voted to stay in the EU. So many um, Scottish people and leaders, especially Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the Scottish National Party, advocates for a second independence referendum for Scotland to prevent it from seemingly being dragged out of the EU. So it pretty much links into the idea of tyranny of the majority, where you have um, smaller divisions within the country or within like the organization, which in this case is the UK, which vote for different things. But as first past the post, you don't need a full majority. You just need more than the other systems. Um, Granted, the Brexit referendum isn't part of an election, but it's still just part of the flawed, the flawed way overall. And it's just sort of with referendums that can lead to tyranny of the majority with low voter turnout, um, which we we're talking about before. And then the way that the leaders are elected for, um, the Conservative Party this last election um, in December 2019 did win more votes than the other main parties. So the Greens the Lib-, the Lib Dems and the Labour, but they still won as they had more. I feel like this is in some ways an example of voter suppression, because if you do have that slim of a majority, you are, you are still ignoring almost half of your population just because a smaller number said yes to something. Around the world, representation of opinions has become especially difficult, but until governments determine how to represent our opinions as constituents, I think it's up to us to share our thoughts and voice our beliefs so we understand how our opinions can truly impact others and as time progresses, actually create change in the world. Oppressive governments and authoritarian regimes serve to hinder this progress and undermine the well-being of the international community. But if we want to mitigate the harms of suppression and allow for equal representation in our world, we have to stand strong and persevere in the face of this adversity. Thank you so much for tuning into the fourth episode of the Global Generation IYPF's podcast. We would like to give a special shout out to Reese Sudhakar from the American Affairs Department, who did an exceptional job helping us prep for this. The next podcast episode will be released in two weeks. For more information on democracy, representation, and topics covering everything from geomilitary relations to human rights, please check out our website at www.iypforum.org and follow us on our Instagram at IYPforum for more information. See you next time on The Global Generation.